and Ronald Reagan. <laughs> For some, Ronald Reagan was God with a lowercase g. For some of us kids back in the 80s. Um, and there is no better person to pontificate about Reagan, his faith, and about the pontiff, about the Roman pontiff, than Paul Kanger. Paul Kanger is a force of nature. He's a political science, scientist at Grove City College, which, along with such august institutions as Hillsdale College, a Christendom College and Patrick Henry College don't accept any federal money, which means he doesn't have to bend. He can tell it as it is. And that is fabulous because that is a philosophy we adhere to here at the Institute of World Politics. As you know, we also do not accept any of the taxpayers' money. Paul. Kanger is a public intellectual on the conservative side. He's one of the very few who's managed somehow to break through the through the uh, panzer ceiling, not glass ceiling, to be heard across the nation. He's written a number of uh, books on conservative issues, including very contentious ones, as uh, so-called. Uh, gay marriage. He also has written a, a few things about, more than a few things about Ronald Reagan, including The Crusader, uh, one of my favorite books. Last but not least, I'd like to, recommend, I'd like to recognize Paul Kanger for appreciating the Institute of World Politics. He's been uh, in and out and around the Institute uh, nailing down its resources, human resources, including my mentors such as uh, the late Professor Herb Rommerstein. It is only because of the junkyard dog qualities of Professor Kenger that some of the dinosaurs even talked. I, be I have begged them forever, please write books. Please provide the truth. Please give us an alternative narrative that would shed true light into the past. Instead, most of the cold warriors have left everything in the evil hands of the evil ones. Such uh, august institutions like the Washington Compost or or the New York slime, <laughs> yes. So it is our fault of the conservatives who simply do not feel like writing about anything. Fortunately for us and for posterity, we have Dr. Kanger. And without much more ado, please welcome him. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. I appreciate that. You know, imagine a, an educational institution not taking federal government money. How would that be possible, right? How can you not exist without government money? Right, right. Absolutely amazing. Is it possible to run an educational institution without government money? How can that be done? How can that be done? But uh, right, that's right. Taxpayer money. That's right. But Grove City College has been doing that for a long time since we went to the Supreme Court, and we lost that case. 
by the way. We didn't win it, we lost it. We lost that case. But, but in the end, maybe we won a longer battle. But thank you, Mark. Also, I'd like to thank John Lanchowski and this outstanding institution. I'm so glad that C-SPAN is here. Thank you, C-SPAN, for, for coming. And above all, for many reasons, not just to, to cover this talk, but also for to, to be here at the Institute of World Politics. So hopefully more young people around the country will learn about the Institute of World Politics. Please Google, take a look. I recommend my students here all the time. And so it's really, really an outstanding choice. So, I, uh, a pope and a president, Ronald Reagan and John Paul II, John Paul II and Ronald Reagan. This is uh, a, a subject I've been researching for a long time. I started filing FOIA requests, Freedom of Information Act requests, back in 2000 at the Reagan Library. And I've written literally at least a dozen books in, in the interim between when I started filing those FOIAs and, and when this came out. This was sort of the project I couldn't walk away from. And it, really a product more of people giving me information and telling me things that I was just astounded to hear, that I, that I didn't know. So it was on again, off again, and then I finally got to the point where I said, I gotta write this, I gotta tell this story. There, there's, there's too much important information out there that's being given to me that people don't know about, that Bill Clark knew about, that Bill Casey knew about, that others knew about, and, and it needs to be told. The history had to be told. So, in a presentation on a 640-page book, I probably shouldn't say that, right? No one will buy it now. But it, you know, where do you even start, right? Where do you even start with this? Well, that's okay. That, well, this is, uh, you should be doing PR for me. All right, okay. God and Ronald Reagan, that book came out in 2004, so that was, um, that was half the length. Of, um, of, of this book. And that's where I think I had a chapter in that book on Reagan and John Paul II, but it, it evidently needed, I needed more pages to be able to fully tell that story. So where do you talk, where do you start it in a presentation? Well, I started in the book in 1917, but here, given only an hour, and you can't uh, go through 600 pages in an hour, I'm gonna start it on October 16, 1978. So on that date, after a six-decade-long Soviet war on religion, Mikhail Gorbachev described it as a war on religion. He, of course, didn't approve of it. He called it off, but he said, my predecessors conducted a vicious war against religion. Marx had called religion the opiate of the masses. He and Engels actually used phrases in the Communist Manifesto, such as abolition of religion. Uh, Lenin thought far worse. Lenin said, all worship of a divinity is a necrophilia. He said, there is nothing more abominable than religion. These men hated religion. They, they, they shut down churches, they blew up churches, they destroyed them, they, banned the, they literally banned the ringing of church bells. They crashed bells to the ground. They melted bells down into useful things, as one aide of Stalin put it, rather than being unuseful things, such as clanging for God in a church somewhere in Moscow or St. Petersburg. So after all of this, six decades, this goes on, persecuting the religious, Russian Orthodox priests, Roman Catholic priests, rabbis, anybody who believed in God, October 16, 1978, the College of Cardinals, the Conclave, plucks out of the heart of the Soviet Communist bloc in Poland, the only country in the Communist bloc where the war and religion totally failed. 
I mean, they, you know, the communists had had some success in Czechoslovakia, squashing religion, in East Germany, in Bulgaria, and Romania, elsewhere, a lot of success, but they couldn't stop it in Poland, where something like 90% of the country still was practicing Roman Catholic. So after a pope who lived for 33 days, the conclave meets again, and they pick the first non-Italian pope in 455 years. I mean, think about how long that is. It's twice the life of the United States. For 455 years, every pope had been Italian, right? I mean, the pope was Italian. That's how it was. They picked the first Slavic pope ever, and it is the archbishop from Krakow, from Poland, Karol Wojtyla, of all things, chosen the 264th heir to the chair of St. Peter. Poles were ecstatic when they heard about this, when they heard rumors at first. They were wondering, is this even possible? They went to their television sets, to the communist-controlled media, to try to find out any confirmation if this had truly happened. If a, if a Polish priest had become pope, there's no way this could have possibly happened. Went to their TV sets. Christoph Meister, a Polish physicist, talks about watching the communist evening news broadcast they put it this way. An announcer came on with a very, very sad face and said that a new pope had been elected, and it was Cardinal Wojtyla. That was it. He didn't say anything else. <laughs> then the announcer switched quickly to the harvest figures, the potato crop, whatever. It was absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. The reaction by uh, Moscow was also very, very subdued. Let me, re let me rephrase that. The public reaction by Moscow was very subdued. All I could find in the, in the archives of Pravda, Izvestia, Fibis, the Foreign Broadcast Information Service, the current digest of the Soviet press, which kept the, all this information, did all the transcripts, did all the translations. I found three sentences reported by Tass Pravda under the title, New Head of the Catholic Church. And it said this, here's the complete text. The election of the new head of the Roman Catholic Church was announced here in Rome. He is a Polish cardinal, Archbishop of Krakow, Karol Wojtyla. He took the name John Paul II. That was it, nothing else. Privately, a shocked Yuri Andropov, who was head of the KGB and had been for a long time telephoned the KGB chief resident in Warsaw, and he asked him, quote, how could you possibly allow the election of a citizen of a socialist country as pope? To which the, the chief told Andropov that he should direct his question to officials in Rome rather than, <laughs> rather than, in, uh, rather than in Poland. And Andropov was not amused. You know, he's somebody who wasn't often amused anyway, but he was uh, not amused. Poland's Monsignor Jarek Chilecki put it this way. He said, there on St. Peter's Square, when Wojtyla came out on the balcony, that was the end of communism. As for Wojtyla's own reaction, he turned to Father Zivich, now Cardinal Zivich, who is still around to this day, and he said to them in Italian, Liposino, which roughly translated means, what have they done? <laughs> what have they done? Do they know what they've done here? Yeah, Moscow was wondering the same thing, right? Yeah, I say in Russian, what have they done? On October 26, 1978, his first Sunday homily, John Paul II exhorted the faithful with these words. You probably know the first three, right? Be not afraid. 
Open the doors to Christ, open them wide. Open the borders of states, economic and political systems. Open the vast domains of culture. Open them to his saving power. Open the borders of states, economic and political systems. Right. So Moscow was very afraid of this. And they were even more afraid and apoplectic when the new pope announced that his first foreign visit was going to be to Poland, of all things. And I think if there's a story running through this book in the case of both Reagan and John Paul II, among the different virtues that they shared, it was courage, right? Willingness to say, my first foreign visit is going to be to Poland. Oh, Holy Father, they're not going to like that in Moscow. Well, of course they're not going to like it in Moscow. I'm going to Poland. Right? My first foreign visit is going to be to Poland. The head of the Soviet Union, Leonid Brezhnev, called Edward Garrick, his, his communist puppet in, in Poland, called him up, literally called him on the phone. We now have the transcript of the conversation and told him to tell the Pope, no, he can't, he can't come to Poland. And Garrick said to him the exact words, how can I not receive a Polish Pope when the majority of my countrymen are Catholics? Brezhnev told Garrick to uh, tell the Pope to come up with a nifty excuse. Quote, tell the Pope, he is a wise man, that he can announce publicly that he cannot come because he has taken ill. He has taken <laughs> ill. So imagine that, right? Is it presumably going to be his excuse for the next 26 years that, he, that, he, that he's not feeling well? Garrick gently told his boss that he couldn't say that. And in reply, Brezhnev barked at him, Gamolka was a better communist than you. And he slammed down the telephone. Slammed down the telephone. So John Paul II goes to Poland. Nine days in Poland, June 2nd to 11, 1979. Huge crowds. Huge, I mean, hundreds of thousands, millions of people. I mean, imagine a million people standing in line to receive communion, right? That's how big some of these masses were. Lech Walesa, who was the head of the Solidarity Movement, said this. He comes to Poland, and the 20 who followed me in the Solidarity Movement were suddenly 10 million. It was a greater multiplication than the loaves and the fishes. Indeed it was, right? Go from 20 million, or 20 to 10 million. For his opening homily at Victory Square on June 2nd, and imagine the symbolism of that, right? Victory Square, Victory Square. Is the, is where the spot he chooses for the opening homily. John Paul II said, Christ cannot be kept out of the history of man in any part of the globe, at any longitude or latitude. The exclusion of Christ from the history of man is an act against man. Without Christ, it is impossible to understand the history of Poland, what Ronald Reagan would call the martyred nation of Poland. And then he said this, there can be no just Europe without the independence of Poland marked on its map. Right? Without the independence of Poland marked on its map. And that was a shot heard around the world. In reaction to this, the New York Times, any chance I get to take a shot at the New York Times, I, I, I take it, wrote an editorial on June 5th, 1979, and this is so snooty, but it's, it's, they said this, as much as the visit of John Paul II to Poland must reinvigorate and re-inspire the Roman Catholic Church in Poland, it does not threaten the political order of the nation or of Eastern Europe. 
So, so tell that to Moscow. Right? Tell, tell that to Moscow. Ronald Reagan's reaction to this, we know because he was watching footage of it of, in, his, in his living room in California. He was an ex-governor at that point, and Richard V. Allen, who had become his first national security advisor, was there sitting with him. And he said, Reagan was watching this, and there were tears in his eyes. And Reagan said, that's it, that's it, that's it. The Pope is the key, the Pope is the key. Dick, we need to get elected. We need to reach out to the Pope and to the Vatican and make them an ally. As Alan put it, he said then and there that the Pope was the key figure in determining the fate of Poland. And the fate of Poland would affect the fate of the communist bloc. He saw the Pope's visit as an extraordinary wedge into the very heart, into the very center of the communist domain. Reagan immediately went into a radio studio in California. He was doing a daily radio broadcast. The great communicator, right? He understood the power of radio. He had this nationally syndicated radio broadcast. My friend Kyron Skinner, a few years ago, went and found all the transcripts. Reagan wrote these himself. They were about three to 400 words each. They were two to three minute radio broadcasts, and he went right in and he recorded two or three of them on the Pope's visit to Poland. And he said this, Stalin once contemptuously asked, how many divisions does the Pope have, right? Reagan said, well, now we've seen how many divisions the Pope has. Wherever he went in Poland, crowds, 400,000, 500,000, 1 million, 5 million. And then Reagan asked, will the Kremlin ever be the same again? And he said, will any of us, for that matter, ever be the same again? And Reagan was never the same again after he saw that. November 13th, 1979. This document was found a few years ago by John Kohler, the Cold War researcher, former AP reporter. It's a November 13th, 1979 Central Committee meeting. Nine Soviet officials met on that day. One of them, by the way, was Mikhail Gorbachev, who would later deny that, that the negative interpretation of this that I'll read to you was what he saw that it intended to mean. But they were furious, apoplectic over this new Polish pope. They were trying to figure out what to do about him, what to do about this menace who was picked October 1979, who now just went to Poland for nine days and shook up Poland, called for the independence of Poland. So they issued this edict, quote, use all possibilities available to the Soviet Union to prevent the new course of policies initiated by the Polish Pope. Use all possibilities available to the Soviet Union. That's a scary thought for a country that was responsible for the deaths of tens of millions of people. If necessary, with additional measures beyond disinformation and discreditation. Now, Kohler put it this way. In layman's terms, this was an order for assassination, foreshadowed by the need to, quote, get physically close, unquote, with the Pope. Now, some would dispute that. That's fine. We can have that argument. But Kohler was given this by, a, by CISDA, which was the Italian Secret Service Agency, and he said the, the translated text that he got from a high-ranking Italian official the very bottom of it said this, CISDA says document found in Moscow points the plan for the physical elimination of JP2. And it, and it may indeed have. 
Because at some point, and I'll get to this, somebody called for the physical elimination of JP2. It's just a matter of when and if the documentation ever existed, in paper or whatever. All right, back to Ronald Reagan. He wants to reach out to them, the Vatican and the Pontiff, and make them an ally. He's got to get elected first, right? So that occurred November 4th, 1980, defeated Jimmy Carter 51 to 41%, won 44 out of 50 states in that election. The Electoral College count was 489 to 49. Can you imagine that? I mean, it's just unbelievable, right? And, and for the record, when Reagan was reelected in 1984, won 49 out of 50 states. Which state didn't he win? Anyone know? Minnesota, exactly, Minnesota. I mean, Ronald Reagan in 1984, the Electoral College count was 525 to 13. Reagan twice, a conservative Republican, twice won California, New York, New Jersey, my home state of Pennsylvania, and even Massachusetts. I mean, it's just not going to happen again, right? It's hard to imagine it even happen. Well, I suppose it's possible. Lech Walesa stood there about a month later with reporters in Poland on his windswept hill in the outskirts of Gdansk, Poland, and he told them, I envisioned what would happen in your presidential election. He said, Reagan will settle things. You wait and see. Ronald Reagan will make things better. Reagan was inaugurated January 20th, 1981. He was sworn in by Chief Justice Warren Burger. He had his mother's Bible open. The Bible that they used was Ronald Reagan's mother, Nell. That first book, God and Ronald Reagan, I dedicated it to, to Nell Reagan. I mean, this is a woman who absolutely, she made this president. She made this boy become a president. She died 20 years before this event, 19 to be exact. But I mean, Nell was there. I mean, this doesn't happen with, without Nell. The Bible's open to the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles 7.14, which says, If my people turn from their wicked ways, I will heal their land. And right next to that, Nell had a personal annotation she had written there, a wonderful verse for the healing of a nation. And Reagan then and there pledged his country to what he called an era of national renewal. He wanted to change America. He wanted to change the world. He wanted to win the Cold War. And people in this room who lived through it Nobody thought that was possible at the time, right? I mean, Reagan did. John Paul II maybe did. That's about it. I mean, nobody else did. And Moscow was immediately afraid of that. In the, in the initial weeks after Reagan's inauguration, the Soviets and their different publications started blasting Reagan and John Paul II. They even called them out. Uh, this is amazing language. But those of you who, uh, Mark, you would know this having... Uh, from that area, from the communist bloc, the kind of language in Soviet publications was so incendiary and so over the top and so vitriolic. It's just, there's nothing like it anywhere. And reading this stuff hurts your stomach. It's so bad. But, but they denounced John Paul II, the Soviet press. This piece was February 1981. As a malicious, lowly, perfidious, and backward toady of American militarists. This is the Pope they're talking about. A guy who's now a saint in the Roman Catholic Church. Malicious, lowly, perfidious, backward toady of American militarists seeking to undermine communism with his overseas accomplices and his new boss in the White House. 
right? His new boss in the White House, right? Moscow, if only these two guys could be dead. Right? To quote Joseph Stalin, death solves all problems. No man, no problem, right? Okay, so March 30th, 1981. 2.25 p.m., Ronald Reagan spoke to the AFL-CIO at the Washington Hilton. He's just a few weeks into his presidency. Two o'clock, two o'clock talk. 2.25 p.m., he walks outside. The press is outside. They yell over to him. He lifts his arm in the air almost as if to deflect questions, like, I'm not taking any questions. Let me go. I'm walking to the limousine. And as he did, John Hinckley is waiting outside. Hinckley is not part of any international conspiracy. He's just trying to get the attention of Jodie Foster. I mean, that was it. He had a crush, Jodie Foster, and he's trying to get her attention. He's going to succeed. He pulls out a gun, a pistol. It's using 22 Devastator bullets, which explode on impact. Starts shooting. Reagan got shot right underneath the arm, went in right underneath his armpit. Jerry Parr, the Secret Service agent, thrust Reagan into the back of the limousine, landed on top of him, uh, immediately ordered the driver to take off. Reagan says, Jerry, get off of me. I think you've broken one of my ribs. So he props him up, helps him up, and there, uh, Parr sees these frothy blood bubbles coming out of Reagan's lips, and he thought to himself, puncture wound, lung, he's been hit. Immediately ordered the driver to go to, go to George Washington University, University Hospital. That split decision probably saved Reagan's life. I mean, and, and it was reported by, by some news organizations at the time that Reagan wasn't even hit. And then if he was hit, he wasn't badly wounded. Nancy Reagan had no idea what she was going to see when she got to the hospital. I mean, she's thinking that her husband might, might be just fine when she gets there. Ronald Reagan got out of the car. He wants to walk in, fell down, went, went, went right down. Went inside, they immediately started working on him, and before he went out, Ronald Reagan would later write this, I focused on that tiled ceiling and I prayed. And this is, this is Nell Reagan. This is Nell in him. But I realized I couldn't ask for God's help, while at the same time I felt hatred for the mixed-up young man who had shot me. Isn't that the meaning of the lost sheep? We are all God's children, and therefore equally beloved by him. I began to pray for his soul, and that he would find his way back into the fold. It's an interesting parallel. John Paul II would forgive his assassin, too, in prison. He would go and meet with him in prison. And when Ronald Reagan died, June 2005, Washington Post published a letter to the editor. It was, it was John Hinckley's psychiatrist, his doctor, who said, Ronald Reagan contacted me in the 1980s and asked me if he could meet with Hinckley personally to forgive him. And I told him, I don't know if that would be good for Hinckley. And Reagan said, Doc, if it's not good for the patient, then we won't do it. But I'd like to, and if I can, I will. But if you say no, then no. He said, I don't think it's a good idea. So Reagan never met with him. But the Reverend Louis Evans, who was pastor at National Presbyterian Church over here, which Reagan had joined the National Presbyterian Church when he first came to Washington, he told me, he talked to Ronald Reagan about this, and Reagan told him that Reagan had this sense that if he didn't forgive his assassin, his would-be assassin, he was going to die. God was going to take his life. So Reagan felt his survival was contingent upon his forgiveness, that that was something he needed to do. Reagan would survive and go on to tell a number of people, his son Michael, his daughter Maureen, 
the Reverend Louis Evans, Billy Graham, he would tell this to Mother Teresa, to Cardinal Cook in New York, that he believed he was spared by God for a special purpose. And as Edmund Morris put it in Dutch, he believed that this man, Reagan wrote this in his diary, whatever happens now, I owe my life to God and I will try to serve him in every way I can. Morris said that meant to Reagan it was time to take on that institutional murderer of all civil liberties known as Soviet communism. Fast forward six weeks, May 13, 1981, St. Peter's Square, Rome. 23-year-old Muslim Turk named Mahmoud Aliasha, he'll later on name seven accomplices, all working under a plan conceived by the Bulgarian secret services. He got to St. Peter's Square early that morning, probably first arrived there around 9 a.m., waited all day, 10, 11, 12, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 o'clock. On the other side of St. Peter's Square, one of his accomplices, Oral Chelik, is waiting with a panic bomb that he's going to detonate as soon as Asha shoots. That way the panic bomb will divert attention to the shooting on the other side. He is, Asha is concealing a 9mm semi-automatic Browning. About 5 o'clock, about quarter after 5, 5.13, 5.15 p.m., John Paul II comes riding up in the white Fiat Popemobile, kissing babies, saying hi to people. Comes close to within a few yards, within a few feet of Asha, and go right past the obelisk in St. Peter's Square, where Peter considered the first pope by the Roman Catholic Church, had been martyred almost 2,000 years ago, right there in that spot. He's driving by, gets up to the spot, Osho lifts his pistol in the air, fired four times, hit the pope twice. One in the hand, one in the abdomen. He immediately sinks down into the arms of two of his aides, Angelo Gugel and also Father Jivich. And Jivich asked him, are you hit? And the Pope said, in the stomach, does it hurt? It does. The Pope was immediately rushed to Gemelli Hospital. One of, fortunately here, another snap decision by an ambulance driver and a doctor who just happened to be in the area who drove the wrong way down a two-way street in Rome, which by the way happens all the time in Rome. If any of you have been to Italy, it's probably, they stopped by a policeman with a submachine gun jumped into the ambulance, they got him there right away. They got him there just in a nick of time because he too, like Reagan, was in the process of bleeding to death. In fact, they asked Father Jivich to give the Holy Father the anointing of the sick. Jivich said, it was tearing me up inside, but I did it. I mean, they, th they thought that he could go. He is greeted by the hospital's very best surgeons, just as Reagan was. Reagan got to Georgia Washington University Hospital. There just happened to be a monthly meeting of all the department heads at that moment when, when he got there. Reagan saw that as providential. Francesco Cruciti, the top surgeon, walks in. The elevators are always jam-packed at the hospital, but this time he said he walked in. Every single elevator door was open. He said, open as he put it by some unknown genius. He get it, gets in, went straight to the ninth floor, bursts in. The nurses start to, to, to change his clothes. He puts on his scrubs, gets ready, goes in. His patient's blood pressure drops to 70. John Paul II underwent five and a half hours of surgery. The first blood transfusion wouldn't take. The doctors and nurses who were there had to donate some of their own blood. 
He needed six pints of blood. Reagan needed eight pints of blood. The bullet missed John Paul II's main abdominal artery by centimeters. The bullet that went in Reagan missed his main artery in his heart by centimeters. So mere centimeters either way, and they were both dead. As for Asha, he tried to flee, but he was seized by a nun named Sister Letizia from the Lombardy region of Rome, who grabbed him, held him down, and, and reprimanded him, and said, you know, why did you do it? And those of you, I can tell some of you went to Catholic schools, right? You, you, you get this, you got the image of the nun in your head, right? You know exactly what she looks like. And Asha said, not me, not me. And she said, yes, you, it was you. And she held him down along with a couple of other people. Asha didn't realize it, but the nun was saving his life. Because when he was to get in the back of the truck that was concealed as like a household goods company, his communist friends were going to put a bullet in him. They weren't going to let him walk away with a cool 300 grand and pat him on the back and give him the order of Lenin. Right? They weren't going to let him walk away from this. Ronald Reagan's reaction to this, he wrote in his diary entry that May 13, 1981, word brought to us of the shooting of the Pope. Called Cardinal Cook and Cardinal Kroll, sent message to Vatican and prayed. NSA National Security Advisor Dick Allen said, Reagan asked me every day for weeks thereafter about the Pontiff's recovery. The president's affection for the Pope was magnified greatly by the shooting. It's interesting, John Paul II had sent a cable to Reagan when Reagan was shot saying, I'm praying for you. And now Reagan sent a cable to the Vatican, I'm praying for you. They had developed the world's most exclusive mutual prayer society. And as for Moscow, if they're worried at this point about a kinship <laughs> between, the, between the, the, you know, the Pope and the president, well, now they better really worry about it. Because Reagan, Reagan had a birthday wish delivered to John Paul II, May 18th, by Congressman Peter Rodino, Democrat from New York. And he said, few people know with precision can share this sort of dubious distinction that you share. Reagan was telling him, I feel your pain. I get it. I get it. Reagan's first public speech after the shooting of John Paul II, this is May 17, 1981. This is amazing. Where would it be? But Notre Dame. Notre Dame. John Paul II, a Marian Pope, dedicated, his papal motto was totus tuus, totally yours, Mary. Right? Mary was his intercessor to, to Jesus. I mean, dedicated his papacy to Mary. Mary is, a, is, is revered in Poland, in Krakow. And Reagan's speech, for speech, is at America's premier Catholic university named for Our Lady at Notre Dame. Reagan there made a statement, wish John Paul II well, and he quoted John Paul II's previous year's encyclical on mercy and justice, where he said that the Holy Father had warned of certain economic theories that used the rhetoric of class struggle to justify injustice. He mentioned this right after sending his greetings to John Paul II. And then he said, in the name of an alleged justice, the neighbor is sometimes destroyed, killed. And I'm wondering, looking back, if Reagan was here subtly telegraphing what he was thinking about who might have been involved. I'll, more on that later. B. 
Bill Casey at the CIA was thinking the same. And by the way, I commend Owen Smith, the, the chairman of the board here at Institute of World Politics, the son of Bill Casey, son-in-law of Bill Casey, Bill Casey's daughter-in-law is Bernadette Casey Smith. And they were of huge help to me and giving me a couple of really critical insights on, on, on this book. Bill Casey, on the morning of May 14, 1981, the day after the Pope was shot, called a meeting of the National Foreign Intelligence Board on F Street in Washington. Bob Woodward writes about this in Vail. He wanted to know, what was Moscow up to on this day after the Pope was shot? Moscow's reaction, after suddenly blasting the Pope as this perfidious, backward, lying toady of his new boss in the White House, suddenly very quiet all of a sudden. On May 14th, Tass released a mere two-sentence statement. According to a statement by a Vatican spokesman, Pope John Paul II remains in stable condition after undergoing five hours of surgery. The Pope was hit by three of the four bullets that the terrorists fired. That's it. By the way, he wasn't hit by three, he was hit by two. Moscow was a little overly hopeful here. <laughs> On May 15th came Pravda's first published response. Look at this. The terrorist who yesterday tried to kill John Paul II is a Turkish citizen. He's Mahmet Ali Asha, who in the past has had close ties with Turkey's neo-fascist nationalist movement, national movement party. Pravda referred to Asha as a neo-fascist twice, terrorist three times, murderer, criminal, and killer once, and seven times as Turkey, Turkish, Turkish citizen. Turk, 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 right? Turk, 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 right? They want everybody, they, they don't want, they want this guy to be seen as a Turkish fascist. If you read Soviet stuff, that was a red flag, right? Pun intended, as, as, as far as I'm concerned. Moscow was kind of quiet for a while for almost a good five or six months. And then The Guardian, the British publication, left of center, right? They published an article in September 1981 suggesting the possibility that Moscow might have been involved with this. All of a sudden, with that, Izvestia exploded. And as you guys know, whatever Pravda and Izvestia published, I mean, this stuff was cleared. I mean, this was always cleared through the Kremlin blasted the Guardian's vile concoction and its ravings. And here's the sort of typical language they use in Soviet publications. Naturally, it never occurred to anyone to portray Asha, this piece of scum, as a communist agent. Ali Asha's shot was said to be the result of a plot organized by countries of the Eastern Bloc. <laughs> Just absurd. This new anti-Soviet concoction is as groundless as all others, they said. I, I could have written 600 pages just quoting Moscow going off the hinges from that point on, lashing out at anybody who dared to suggest they might have been involved. Claire Sterling, who did amazing work on all this in the early 80s, just slamming, eviscerating anybody who, su who suggested this. And, and just lie after lie after lie. In short order, Moscow, the Kremlin, would be saying that the CIA ordered the hit on the Pope. Anything. Why not? Right? Say it loud enough. Who knows? Maybe some people will pick it up. June 7, 1982. Finally, Reagan and John Paul II met 
for the first time. Reagan had wanted to get together with this pope since June 1979. They had been trying to get together. Reagan reached out to him in February 1981 when the pope was going to be going through Alaska on a stopover, a layover, anything he could have to, to try to finally get together. Now they finally meet here for the first time. Bill Clark was there. Bill Clark replaced, I dedicate the book to Bill Clark. He replaced Dick Allen at the National Security Council. And there is no transcript available of this. So we only know what Reagan told Clark and some others. I, I, I'm told that, that there were Vatican note takers for a lot of these meetings. Reagan and John Paul II would meet five times between 1982 and 1990, one-on-one. -on -one. And, but this was one-on-one -on -one Vatican library, so what we know is what other people have told us. The Vatican records are sealed for 75 years. So Vatican records on the 1982 meeting will be released in 2057. I'll be 90 if I'm alive at that point, right? I'll get my cane and hobble into the Vatican and, and see what, what I can see. But they, they talked about the miraculous fact, as they put it, that they had both survived and that they believed that God had spared their lives for a special purpose, which they believed was to take down and defeat Soviet communism. That's what they said to one another. Reagan told him, the Pope, look how the evil forces were put in our way and how providence intervened. Clark said, this was a wonderful and transformative day. It gave the president and the pope the ability to form a very personal relationship from then on. The meeting led to real action. They translated their lofty divine mission into a practical mission to sustain the solidarity movement as the wedge that could split the communist empire. Imagine this non-Polish, of course, president, Protestant president, and he says to this Polish pope, hope remains in Poland, his exact words. We working together can keep it alive. One of the cardinals who was there and familiar with the meeting put it this way, and this was quoted by Carl Bernstein in his excellent piece for Time Magazine, 1992, on what, what he called the Holy Alliance. This is an amazing statement. Nobody believed the collapse of communism would happen this fast or in this timetable, but in their first meeting together, the Holy Father and the President committed themselves and the institutions of the church in America to such a goal. Imagine that. And from that day, the focus was to bring it about. The focus was to bring it about in Poland. It would be the crack in the Soviet bloc. If you pounded the wedge into the bloc hard enough, the whole bloc would split from top to bottom. Poland and the Solidarity Movement could be the dagger to the heart of the Soviet Empire. That's how they saw it. It's a pretty remarkable. They would go on to meet, as I said, five times after that. 1982, they met in 1984 in Fairbanks, Alaska. June 1987 in Rome. September 1987 in Miami. That cover, the cover of my book, the picture, I, I love the picture. I, went, I said, please, to the editor, I said, please put that picture on the cover of the book. Uh, but it is, uh, it's from Miami in September 1987. That's Nancy Reagan's favorite picture of the two as well. She, she loved that picture. You know, Reagan is saying something very earnestly. John Paul II is listening very carefully. But they had, uh, they had great mutual admiration for one another. And yet at the same time, I think what's really interesting about this is that Reagan, not being Catholic, um, had awe and great admiration for the John Paul II, who he called a great man, 
superlatives, but at the same time, he wasn't as in awe of the Holy Father as like a Catholic might be. And so I, they dealt with each other somewhat more as equals, which that cover of the book, I think, shows that, because Reagan's kind of speaking very earnestly, and the Pope is listening to him. Yeah, that, that, that picture really captures that. Reagan, um, Reagan also, though, knew Catholicism, because his father was Catholic, his brother was, his brother was a daily communicant in the Catholic Church. His sister-in-law, Bess, who just died a few years ago, lived to be over 100, very devout Catholic. He had Catholic speechwriters, Peggy Noonan, Tony Dolan, Peter Robinson. Dick Allen was Catholic. Al Haig was Catholic. Al Haig's brother was a Catholic priest, a Jesuit priest. Bill Clark, of course, Catholic. Ronald Reagan's ex-wife, Jane Wyman. You guys don't know this. Jane Wyman, the movie star, died a third-order Dominican nun. She was buried in the habit she was so devout that in her contract for Falcon Crest in the 1980s, she added the stipulation that a priest be on set with her every day to serve her communion. That's how devout she became. Reagan and John Paul II, they were in constant communication. I tried to count the letters, the cables, the diplomatic pouches, the liaison, the contacts. It's impossible. There were so many of them. The, the documents that are still redacted don't even make sense. There are so many of them. I don't understand why so many of them are still redacted. Martin and Annalise Anderson said that they counted by the end of 1981 a dozen or so direct letters that had already been exchanged between them by, before 81 was, was even over. They had, there was, so mu there was so much communication. I found a December 29, 1981 memo between Bill Clark and, and Nance at the White House where they were worried that there was too much communication going on. Are we overloading, are we overloading the Vatican circuits, they said. And Clark said, no, we need to keep this going. We need to constantly talk. I've got here, which you really can't see on camera, but this is a February 1984 urgent cable, 11.30 at night, from John Paul II in Rome to Ronald Reagan. He's been trying to reach the president all day by phone. It's really important. And then it says, so now we get to the, the right, I'm looking at this in the Reagan library. I got this declassified. I'm like, oh, what does it say? Turn the next page. Begin message from Holy Father. All blacked out. Next page. All blacked out. What is it? What were they talking about? I have no idea. No idea. Going to have to wait a while. The main contacts liaison between the two, Bill Casey, Bill Clark, and P.O. Loggi. That was, if you will, the Troika. Bill Clark of the National Security Council, Bill Casey at the CIA, and P.O. Loggi, who was the apostolic nuncio to Washington. Clark said they had a phrase, cappuccino, when, when he and Casey would be talking to one another on the phone, and they realized it was time to talk to, to Cardinal Loggi and they thought there was a possibility that their phone conversations might be listened to, Clark would say, Bill, I think we need to get some cappuccino. And that meant it was time to go to the archbishop's residence. For, because back in those days, he made a dynamite cappuccino, and you couldn't get cappuccino in every corner in Washington like you could today. But they would go there. They met so often with, with Loggie. Clark said that he met with Loggie sometimes weekly, sometimes more than a week. And they kept no notes. I looked at all of Clark's stuff and all of his boxes in the tack barn at his ranch in Central California. No notes. 
I said, you have even one napkin that has notes on it. He said, sometimes I scribbled things on a napkin, but I threw it away. He said, Paul, this was too important. I wasn't looking, I wasn't writing memoirs. I wasn't trying to tell the press anything. We wanted to take down an evil empire. This was, this was a divine calling. This transcended politics. He didn't care about what the New York Times thought, right? No notes, period. Me, Casey, and Loggy, period. That's it. Nobody else. The State Department doesn't even know that we're meeting. Fine. Reagan knows. I'll brief Reagan. Speaking of which, all right, so i got to move along here. The big blockbuster of my book, really the biggest uh, issue in it, which convinced me that I had to write this, that I, that I had to pursue this project, it's the book's longest chapter. I was told that the CIA did, under Casey's direction, a truly super-secret, extraordinary investigation outside of the institutional CIA and the CIA establishmentarians. This was a dogfight in the CIA. There were hardliners in the CIA, there were softliners. Strongly anti-Soviet people and people that weren't anti-Soviet. There were actually some people in the CIA who thought that there's no way the Soviets would ever put a bullet in the Pope. They would never do something like that. Especially because some people in the CIA were even arguing, Bob Gates writes about this in, in his memoirs. Some people in the CIA were even arguing that the, that the Soviets saw the Pope as, as, a, as, as, um, as offering stability in the communist empire, which I think is insane that anybody would think that. But some people believe that. So this was a dogfight in the agency. The Italians were investigating the shooting. And people wanted to know, were we investigating the shooting? There were three or four occasions where Reagan was asked in press conferences, are you guys looking into this? And Reagan would say, the Italians are looking into it. But people in Washington, Senator Al D'Amato, among others, were pushing and pushing and pushing. Bill, Casey, you guys need to look into this. So Casey, this is what I was told, set up an internal investigation. I was told it was done by two young women, one in her late 20s, early 30s, other in her early 40s, who did dynamite research, ran circles around the establishment with the research that they did, and they concluded in an internal report that to this day hasn't been fully released, hasn't been declassified. April, May 1985, they concluded, our CIA concluded, this small group concluded, that the Soviets ordered the hit on the Pope. And specifically, it was ordered by by, it was ordered and organized by the Soviet GRU, military intelligence. And it was done so with the go-ahead, the approval, and the blessing of a guy named Yuri Andropov at the KGB. That's what they learned. Casey, I was told by a number of sources, briefed Reagan on this one-on-one -on -one in the Oval Office. I went back through all of the president's daily uh, record and schedule for April and May 1985. There was one day that he and Casey met one-on-one. -on -one. It, was, it, was, it was May 16, 1985, 11.02 a.m. to 11.17 a.m. Doug Brinkley in the Reagan Diary says, there are thousands of pages in the Reagan Diary. The federal government, they cleared almost all of the pages. They all got through except maybe like a handful, about a half a dozen pages. One of the pages that isn't cleared is the Casey meeting with Reagan of May 16, 1985, 11.02 to 11.17 a.m. And I think that's the moment when Casey briefed Reagan and told him what happened. And I was told of the conversation, Casey explained, and then Reagan, Casey was holding the document, 
And Reagan said, can I see that? Casey, Casey said, yeah, you can see it. You're the president. Of course you can see it. And Reagan looked at it and said, oh, what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about this? Casey, I was told, briefed John Paul II on it, who said, I'm not surprised. He suspected the Soviets as early as July 18, 1981. Maybe even earlier, before he passed out, and his final words to the nurse in the hospital, John Paul II said to her, how could they do it? How could they do it? They? Just one shooter was Asha. Who's, who's he thinking about with they? He wasn't surprised. Some of the guys in the CIA who thought the Soviets would never do it, Bill Casey, Bill Clark, Ronald Reagan, and John Paul II, who thought that this country was an evil empire, who knew it killed tens of billions of people, it blew up churches, killed priests and nuns, killed them when they could, right? If they couldn't kill them, they'd torture them. Cardinal Benzenti and other cases, right? They had no trouble believing that the Kremlin would want to put a bullet in the Pope, right? They did character assassination of Pius XII. If Stalin could have gotten his hands around the neck of him, he would have, right? They would have hung him from the, from the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel if they could have, right? They wanted this guy gone. They realized he was a mortal threat to their empire. By the way, it's something, here's where Reagan and the Kremlin agreed. They both agreed that John Paul II was a grave threat to the Soviet empire, which is why Reagan said, I need to reach out to him and make him an ally to take down the empire, and which is why the Kremlin said, he's got to go. He has to be eliminated. So uh, John Paul II's reaction to this, I was told by a number of sources, and Ambassador Thomas Melody said this, uh, not my exact words, but I have it in the book. He told this to the National Catholic Reporter in April 2005 when John Paul II died. He said that um, he asked the Holy Father about releasing all details of, a, of any investigation into the shooting of the Pope, and John Paul II said, no, let it go. By 1989, Mikhail Gorbachev was visiting the Vatican and invited John Paul II to come to Russia, which he had always wanted to do. By the way, why didn't he go to Russia? It wasn't, John Paul, it wasn't Gorbachev's fault. Russian Orthodox uh, Church didn't want John Paul II to, to, to come to Russia. But John Paul's like, what's done is done. It's over. Things are getting better. Uh, Paul Henze, who was a CIA station chief, he also wrote a book on this in the early 80s, as did Claire Sterling. He, he said that John Paul II in the mid-80s figured, if I come out and publicly say that the Soviets did this, they're just going to deny it. They're going to launch a disinformation campaign. And he didn't want World War III to be started over him. What was done was done. He survived. Time to move on. This is a guy with an eternal window of a 2,000-year church. He's thinking eternity, right? He doesn't care about whether or not this gets reported by the Washington Post in 1985. All right, let me finish this up. 1989, the collapse of communism. Ronald Reagan, no longer president, spring of 1989, he was meeting in his Century City office with four Poles. Chris Zawodkowski, a Polish-American, had brought in members of the Polish Solidarity Movement. They were getting ready for the first free and fair elections in the communist bloc, which, were, which should have happened at Yalta, right? This was a betrayal that had gone on for 44 years at that point. 
And these were admirers of Ronald Reagan. One of the members gave Reagan a special hand-carved Madonna that he had carved in prison as an imprisoned solidarity member. Reagan said, thank you, I'll take this. I'll take this into my home. They asked Reagan, they said, can you give us any advice, campaign advice, this guy who's had enormous political success in his lifetime? And Reagan told them this, of all things, listen to your conscience, because that's where the Holy Spirit speaks to you which is an odd sentiment for political advice, is it not? And then he turned and he pointed to a picture of John Paul II on his wall. And Reagan said, he's my best friend. He's my best friend. I was told this over 10 years ago. And believe me, I wrote that one down. So he said, he's his best friend. He said, he's my best friend. I quote Nancy Reagan on this, who used similar language as well, and a number of people in the book. Now, to be sure, there's some genial overstatement in that phrase. They weren't best friends, okay, in the sense of calling one another up and you know, asking about the grandkids or about going golfing or going fishing or talking about the ball game. But I think what Reagan meant was in this, what he saw as a historical spiritual calling to defeat the great evil of the 20th century that went from 1917 to 1989, that far outlisted the evil of Nazism. He had no closer or better or best friend than John Paul II. I think that's what he meant by that. They held those elections in Poland, June 4th, 1989. The communists didn't win a single seat. And in the upper chamber where 100 seats were open, Solidarity won 99 out of 100. The other one who, who won was a businessman who was not Solidarity, but he certainly wasn't a communist. That was the breach in the Berlin Wall. If you want to know what really led to the breach in the Berlin Wall, it was those elections in Poland in, in 1989, in June 4th, 1989. All right, a couple more things and I'll wrap this up. Reagan and John Paul II would meet once more at the Vatican, September 1990. No one reported on this. No one reported on Reagan's June 1987 Vatican meeting. Well, a few did on that, but not many. I found only a three-sentence blurb in USA Today. I asked Nancy Reagan about it. Nancy Reagan said, it was a warm and wonderful meeting. They did discuss all of these people and places with the Pope, meaning the collapse of communism, but she couldn't recollect specific details other than saying, we just loved him. Ronnie and I loved him. And it was a warm and wonderful meeting. It would turn out to be their last meeting together. 21st century, Ronald Reagan slowly drifted away from Alzheimer's disease. George Weigel, the great biographer of John Paul II, said that John Paul II would ask, often ask him how Reagan was doing. And Weigel shared a story he had heard from Ed Meese about Reagan not even remembering that he was president. And, and he said John Paul II was hurt by that. Uh, John Paul II was fading from Parkinson's disease. Bill Clark also died from Parkinson's disease. And Bill, uh, Bill used to say to me, you know, Paul, the good Lord gave Parkinson's disease to saints like John Paul II and my father. And now he's gotten around to giving it to sinners like me. That's what, that's what Clark said. So for Reagan, the body was strong, the mind was gone. For John Paul II, the mind was strong, the body was gone. The world, remember this, you guys? The world watched as these two men, there was a death watch for both of these guys for a long time. 
It went on for months. On June 4, 2004, President George W. Bush went to Rome to give the Presidential Medal of Freedom to John Paul II, who was hunched in agony, barely able to mouth words. He thanked Bush and he thanked Reagan. He said, I send my regards to President Reagan and to Mrs. Reagan. And Ronald Reagan died the next day, June 5th. Less than a year later, on April 2nd, 2005, John Paul II died as well, joining his, uh, his partner in life, now in death, less than a year later. And I'll wrap up with this final statement. Another thing that nobody in the press reported on, <coughs> June 27, 2011, a special mass was held at St. Mary's Basilica in Krakow. They called it a Thanksgiving Mass, a Mass of Thanksgiving for Blessed John Paul II and for the life of President Reagan. They were celebrating two events, uh, the beatification of John Paul II on his path to eventual canonization and the centenary of Ronald Reagan's birth. Officiating was Cardinal Stanislaw Zivich, who was that priest who had held a sagging, bleeding Holy Father in his arms in St. Peter's Square on May 13, 1981, who anointed him, the anointing of the sick, at the hospital, Jameli Hospital. And Jeevich said this, this world is a battlefield of good and evil, of truth and falsehood. Each of us faces a choice. Today we recall two great men who stood before this very choice and how their decision influenced the course of history and shaped the world in which we live. Those two, he said, John Paul II and Ronald Reagan, answered that call. They chose to fight against evil. They came together on the battlefield and they did it at great personal risk to the point where one of them took a bullet directly because of it and almost died because of it. They were unafraid to stand up to the Soviet beast that had killed tens of millions of people. And because of that, and because of what they did, and what they committed to doing together, they rewrote the ending of the story of the 20th century. Thank you. I hope I didn't go too long, Kevin. So, okay, thank you. Any questions? And when anyone has a, a question to ask, if you can just uh, present your remarks to the microphone, that would be great. Yes. Do you, see, do you see all the homicides and disappearance of the reporters and people in Russia now is doing exactly what you just spoke about? Yeah, it's scary to see what's going on Absolutely. In, in Russia. In fact, that's what led to them being docked by Freedom House, right, a few years ago because of the the journalists who have mysteriously died or you know, from whatever causes. And you know, to bring this into this, I think this is an interesting point. Vladimir Putin has been leader since 2007, right? Whether he's changing the name of the title from president to prime minister or whatever, changing the constitution. Still KGB. Still KGB. Putin was in the KGB on May 13, 1981, when John Paul II was shot. Now, there's no way that he was involved in this or knew about it. He was too low-ranking at the time, okay? His boss was Yuri Andropov, boss in the sense that Andropov was the number one man at the KGB. He knew about this. He gave it the go-ahead. He gave it his blessing. So, again, there's no way that Putin knew about it. But I can't imagine that Putin today doesn't know what happened. 
And he has been a major protector of the GRU, military intelligence. Jack Ziak, a friend of Institute of World Politics, points this out. The GRU is a rock. It's the only agency, uh, uh, intelligence, military agency in, this, uh, in Russia that hasn't changed names. And the KGB has changed names, and, and Putin has given it more strength and more staff, and he's been a protector of both. So is this why maybe this information that we know on our side hasn't been released because we're afraid of offending the Russians? Could that be? Why? It's been 36 years. And you know, I would encourage our new president, who's very bold with that Twitter account of his, <laughs> all right, and is very candid and very vocal about his opinions and doesn't want to be seen as Putin's lapdog and doesn't want to be shown as a pawn of the Russians, all right, then why don't you call on Putin to tell us what he knows about this? William Sapphire called it the crime of the 20th century. Well, I think we effectively now know who was behind it. Why not release the details? And I would also ask President Trump or anybody in the federal bureaucracy today, uh, can we get declassified at Langley whatever is still sitting there? There can't, and I honestly wonder if maybe it's just the bureaucracy hasn't thought about these things in a while. Um, it's been over 10 years since the death of John Paul II, but let's get some of this information declassified and released. That, that was the crime of the century. The Soviet, the Kremlin tried to kill a pope, of all things. Do you know how that would have changed the end of the 20th century? I mean, Sapphire is right. It was the crime of the century. The Italians figured out really over a dozen years ago that the GRU was behind it. They're convinced of it. And to learn now, and as I reported in this book, to know that our CIA concluded the same thing and that information hasn't been released, I'm hoping that the release of this book will help lead to the release of some of that information. It's about time. In the summer, um, early on before, um, I guess it was in the summer of 81, um, Courier, Dallas, Aaron, among many newspapers in Europe began to cover the Bulgarian connection. That's right. Uh, Jeremiah Denton had a hearing on it. Paul Hensley, I was there, I wrote about it, etc. Interesting. But the CIA never glommed on to it. I don't. Can you explain why the CIA dragged, well, more than dragged its feet? It was, the, it was, uh, was that the best uh, agnostic. It was the division in the CIA between kind of the establishmentarians who um, were more, I don't know if I should even use labels like left of center, maybe that's not a right way to put it, but who were kind of softer in their views on the Soviets than, than the, the, the types of Casey and Clark and others who had a much more hardline view toward the Soviets. And they, uh, Claire Sterling, who did amazing reporting on this in 1982, 1983, she wrote a huge multi-thousand page uh, piece, uh, uh, page one piece for the New York Times. And before that, a huge piece for Reader's Digest, which had a huge circulation in those days. She wrote a whole book on this, uh, looking, looking into the assassination attempt. Casey, actually, I quote him on this in the book, held up, that, held up Sterling's book and said, I paid $13.95 for this thing, which told me more than you blankety blanks to whom I pay $50,000 a year. I was told that Casey followed up on this by meeting one-on-one -on -one and having lunch with Claire Sterling in New York, and that that was a pivotal moment. I was told that by the person who set up the lunch. And he came away from that thinking, all right, we've got to look into it. And it's interesting, if you read Sterling's book, she's a little hard on Casey, Clark, and Reagan. Not too hard, but kind of like, you guys are the hardliners. You're, you're the 
evil empire guys. Why aren't you digging into this? She didn't know that privately, and Clark told me this for the first time about 10 years ago, they all suspected that the Soviets were behind it. But they didn't have proof. The, the view of Reagan as a verbal bomb thrower, bellicose, just, yeah, evil empire, uh, they lie, they cheat. Reagan said, use words like that when it served a constructive purpose. But he was always very careful in what he said. And if you read the press dialogue with Reagan, Mr. President, do you think the Soviets could have been behind this? Reagan was very cautious. I don't know. I don't have any idea. I shouldn't offer a personal opinion, he said. I understand the Italians are looking into this. We support the Italians looking into it. So, um, so, so Reagan privately and publicly, um, he, he was much more careful what he said in, in public about it. But, but Casey, after meeting with, uh, with, with Sterling and others, said, we've got, to do, we've got to do our own investigation at the CIA and find out what happened. I mean, if, this, if Claire could learn this much, and as soon as they learned that, and Ali Asha himself came out, and he was being led from the Italian prison to a courthouse. This was in the summer of 1983. And the Italian press, this would be great to see on film, but the Italian press is saying, who asked you to shoot the, the Pope? The Bulgarians did. The Bulgarians. Yes, the Bulgarians. Who else was behind it? The KGB. The KGB, he starts singing like a canary. And the Italians are asking him questions as he's you know, being walk, walked along in handcuffs. But as soon as... Clark and Casey and Reagan heard, heard, heard the Bulgarians. I mean, the Bulgarians, Bulgaria was called the 16th Soviet Republic. No other country in the Soviet bloc was as under the thumb of, of, of the Kremlin as Bulgaria. I mean, the Bulgarian Secret Service was a stooge to the KGB. And as Clark said, the, the, it, it was typical of the Soviets to always get someone else to do their dirty work. They did it through proxies and through the Bulgarians in particular. So when, when they heard that the Bulgarians were involved, that was it. And by the way, let me ask you this. Why would the Bulgarians want to kill the Pope? Right? What do they care about this? The Bulgarians? They're not going to do that unless Moscow told them, gave them the go-ahead. Other questions? No? Yes? In your book, you talk about but as documentation is developing and as there's discussions proceeding in Eastern Europe, there are also questions about to what degree Valenza himself might have been a compromised figure. Do you have any comment there? Yeah, I'm not sure. It's interesting. Zhirozelsky uh, uh, is kind of the same thing. A lot of people don't totally know and have questions about him. But uh, uh, Lech Valesa actually said, and I go through this in the book, that, um, that, that they had put a contract out on him as well, and that they actually tried to assassinate him. And I, and I think the payment on that was going to be $300,000. And the initial hit, this is fascinating, it was January 20th, 1981, when Walesa went to Rome to meet with John Paul II. And he bowed before him, and John Paul II gave him his blessing. They went in, they had a private mass together in his private chapel. And he went back to his hotel in, in Rome, and it was supposed to detonate. It was supposed to explode. And it didn't happen. It didn't go through. I mean, some people might see that as divine planning. And the person who failed to pull off that assassination of Lech Walesa was a guy named Mahmoud Ali Asha, according to Walesa. 
And so he disappointed his bosses at the Kremlin that time, but he wouldn't disappoint him a few months later, May 13, 1981. Should I stop? Are there any final questions? No? All right, thank you very much. Appreciate it.